Welcome to episode 20 of the Marine Layer podcast with TJ Matthewson and Lyle Goldstein. On today's pod, it's our minor league preview. We'll take a look at the Mariners' entire minor league system and how it projects out for the 2023 season with Jim Callis of MLB.com and MLB Pipeline. We'll, of course, answer a listener question. And as always, we will close out the show with Speak Your Mind. Let's get it rolling. And we welcome you into this episode of the Marine Layer Podcast on Monday, March 20th. Lyle, how's your bracket doing? It's dead. Considering I had Arizona winning it all, dead. That's brutal. The, you know, the way I put it, I think it's so funny that Arizona essentially lost to the guys who will eventually be their boss in future life, right? <laughs> Those guys at Pews, that in Princeton, they're going to be running companies. They're going to in front offices of NBA teams, those guys playing on the Arizona basketball team just lost to their future boss. Could could you imagine showing up to work and like the point guard for Princeton 20 years later is your CEO is like, hey, remember when we were 15 and we beat you? That would be funny. That would be water cooler talk every single day. Like that Arizona point guard who works for the Princeton player We'll never live it down. Honestly, this is probably what I get for picking our rival school to win the whole thing. They go out and lose in the first round. Again, I was just trying to pick a good bracket. But as somebody who tries to think too logically about their picks, Arizona was like a top five team in Kempom offensively. They had all these ridiculous wins. They won the Pac-12 tournament. I was like, this feels like a pretty safe pick in a year. There's no sure thing to win it all. And then they lose in the first round. Welcome to March. Except that... They didn't have a top 40 Ken Palm defense, which is a key to win a national title. No, wait, top 22, I think it is. What, it's a top 40 offense and top 22 defense. 100% since 04. Shame. Well, maybe that's where I messed up. I should have I should have realized that they were not a good defense. However, it was not defense that lost them that game. It was the fact that a top five offensive team in the country scored six points in the final 11 minutes. That it's so bizarre. I I can't believe that. I'm just going to toot my own horn. I did a work bracket with a bunch of people I work with at our radio station. Uh, I have a perfect Midwest bracket. I, I'm like getting a perfect bracket is impossible, but I have a quarter of the bracket that is 100% perfect through two weeks, uh, two rounds. So not to brag, but. No, know, I, I, I'm going to tip. I'm going to tip my cap to that because to even pick a quadrant of the bracket perfect is pretty ridiculous. So if if the, the genie's out of the bottle and telling us what's going to happen this weekend, Houston's going to beat Miami, Xavier is going to beat Texas, and then Houston is going to beat Xavier and snag one of the spots in the Final Four. Let's go Cougs, right? Sure. Hey, what percentile are you in your bracket? Uh, so my work one does not have a percentile. Um, it, mm. We are using a not so great service to provide our bracket. I can pull up my ESPN one here if you give me like two seconds. That's fine. While you're I talking, it, I think it's in like the I think it's in like the 60th percentile. To be honest, I don't think I don't think it's very good. I have Alabama in my work bracket, and I believe I have Houston with this one. If we find, let's find. Oh. Bracket. 
Okay, that's wild because my bracket percentile-wise is like just below the 80th percentile. A lot of my picks have actually been good. Like I had Furman over Virginia, for example. But Well, I know I that. Had, well, yeah. But hey, to be fair, three of my final four teams are still in. I think six of my final Elite Eight teams are still in. It's just, it's obviously going to end terribly because my winner lost in the first round. The one bracket I have that is um that that is ESPN is in 77th percentile which is good hmm. so I have Houston over uh Houston over Alabama I have Alabama and Houston in my final regardless in both brackets so if if that happens I'm I'm doing pretty well I know a good chunk of the country probably also has Houston and Alabama in the in the in the final judging that if you had Kansas or if you had Purdue in your final well you're kind of fucked now there's 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 nothing that that's going to save you. Um, so, man, what a joke. God, Purdue is such a joke. How I mean, how do you have if, someone? If, can you explain to me how you have a seven foot four player facing the shortest team in the tournament whose tallest player is six foot six and you still lose? Well, because they're a one man show. And if you watch the end of that game. Like everybody else on Purdue looked afraid to shoot the ball. It was just give it to Edie, give it to Edie. Like nobody else wanted to do anything. At least that's how it looked. That's crazy. Purdue got fairly dicked. How about that? Does that roll <laughs> off the tongue? Apparently fairly dick. It does. Apparently fairly Dickinson's name is fairly ridiculous. That's what everybody on the East Coast calls him. But not so ridiculous. Or actually very ridiculous this weekend, considering they did what only one other 16 seeds ever done. Before we go to baseball, would you just like to get something off your chest about um, about Virginia? Oh, yeah. I mean, they just continue to do what they always do, except the one year I kind of puffed my chest out about it, saying they were absolutely going to lose, and then they won it all. But other than that, they, <laughs> they do seem to do this every year, where they're like a somewhere between a one and a five seed, and then they get bounced in the first round. Because, you know, so it they- happened in 2018. 20- no, I was just saying them and Purdue pretty much. So Purdue has now lost to a 13, a 15, and a 16 in consecutive years. And Virginia has lost to a 16, won a national title, and then went first round, first round. Uh, so three first round exits and a national championship. Yeah, I mean, that's how it goes, I guess. That that Tony Bennett style of basketball works when you have a team like they did in 2019 where you know, they had some real players on that team like DeAndre Hunter. But when they get down, especially with guys that aren't supreme athletes, you know, it's hard for those guys to come back. And that's why sometimes when they run up against an athletic team, they kind of falter in the tournament. So it happened again. Oh, it is a it is a good time of year. I've I've really enjoyed the first couple of days uh, of of this basketball tournament. Let's get to baseball, though. A little bit of Mariners news this week before we get into our uh, our minor league preview with Jim Callis. Dylan Moore strained his oblique grade one strain, uh, and he will be out two to four weeks. Uh, he will be not participating in any baseball activities two to four weeks. He'll miss opening day. Though not I, great. It it's it's it it is not great, and I think the perspective that we're sort of understanding now is relying on more than one platoon means you're relying on more guys to be healthy when the season starts. And then when one guy isn't healthy, uh, things sort of cascade around it a little bit. The Mariners are not the deepest team in the world in terms of position players. We know that. 
The good news is it's not a long-term injury for Dylan Moore. It's not like he's going to miss four months. Like he should be back at the latest, I would think by, I'll say early May. Cause obviously, you know, once he comes back from baseball activity, he'll have to get some swings in and then I'll need some live at bats. He'll probably go to triple a for a few games. So I would guess around early May at the latest, but I think the Mariners can survive without him for the time being, but you're right. They are going to have to rely on some guys. They probably weren't hoping to, and it could be somebody like Mason McCoy. Colton Wong didn't show anything last year that he's at this point of his career could hit competently against lefties, which is an issue. So you face some good lefties like a Framber Valdez in your own division, let alone, or Martin Perez too, let alone across the entire league. It's just, it's not, it's not favorable because, and, and Demo's not just a second baseman. He's also, again, probably your best backup corner outfielder as well. So it's, so it's the Mason McCoy show where you trade for somebody. I don't know that would they trade Chris Flexen to try and get an infielder at this point of the season? I don't know. I, I hope this isn't a, a nagging injury because it could nag the Mariners all season. That's for sure. If it was up to me, and again, obviously it's not, I'm not the GM or the president of baseball ops, but Sam Haggerty hits lefties pretty well. I mean, you could have him fill that second base platoon role while Dylan Moore's out. Haggerty can play some other positions. Obviously he can play outfield, but if you need a final spot, and Cade Marlowe was swinging it in spring training, not to mention the fact he was on the taxi squad during the playoffs. The Mariners clearly think he is a borderline big leaguer. I don't know. Like, if you're trying to get the best bats on the roster, that might be the way I go over McCoy. But the Mariners may opt for defense over offense and go with McCoy. Yeah, Mason McCoy is a pretty good shortstop down at the AAA level last year. Defensively, at least, he also hit pretty well, especially towards the end of the season. So we're thinking Haggerty. So Haggerty's essentially your full-time backup infielder at that point. The only problem is you can trust Dylan Moore at all four infield positions do the Mariners trust Sam Haggerty at all four infield positions because that's the role he would be taking over essentially and if they don't if they're like hey Sam maybe you know we don't feel you as a shortstop and we don't want to play you at third base if possible then I think you have to go with Mason McCoy instead of a outfield bat and Cade Marlowe because you think about Cade like where's Cade Marlowe getting in the lineup ever if if he makes the roster like where where is he where is he slotting in? Yeah, he may not be anything more than a bench bat and a backup outfielder. And you're right, I'm not sure the Mariners trust Haggerty to play shortstop or first base. They might feel better with McCoy doing that. So if it's about defense, again, they'll probably opt to go with McCoy. Plus, McCoy's still in big league camp, and and Marlowe did get optioned. Now hear me out, Lyle. Isaiah Kiner Falefa. Again, I don't really want to trade Chris Flexen. Like, the Mariners had depth problems in the rotation forever. Like, I'd rather keep him. Yeah, that, that was kind of a joke because I don't see anything positive on Twitter. I mean, there's nothing ever positive on Twitter, but especially about IKF. Just if I ever scroll onto Yankees Twitter, usually someone's bitching. <laughs> and, and IKF is usually, like, pretty often he's a subject of it, so. I mean, I'm I'm probably good. I just thought it was funny. Yeah, I mean, he's a good defender, but I know he didn't play well in the Bronx last year. And you know how Yankee fans are. Somebody doesn't perform in pinstripes, they'll let you hear about it. So I'm going to guess the Mariners opt to just go with some positions in-house. Speaking of in-house, we've got our minor league preview coming up this week. It's a great show. 
we had Jim Callis on of MLB Pipeline and MLB.com breaking down a ton of prospects with us. For an episode like this, where we're doing a full minor league episode, I feel like that's about as good a guess as we can have on. I mean, now, obviously, a white whale of this podcast would be to get somebody like Jerry Depoto on, which would be awesome. But of course, if you work for the team, you're going to prop up your own guys, where Jim writes for a third-party website. He can give an unbiased perspective on everybody, and he gives some pretty good breakdowns on some guys. Yeah, I was really pleased. I, I think... Uh, we spend some time going through most of the top 10 and then scattered throughout the rest of the system and sort of how the system projects throughout the season. Jim is very in-depth with his breakdowns, which I like. So, it, you know, it's really good getting some analysis from him, especially maybe a little bit of an insight of how they view the system overall. They haven't done their overall system rankings yet or preseason rankings for systems, for farm systems. So it's good to sort of get that from uh, – from Jim Callis to 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 preview the season, the minor league season, minor leaguers break camp. <sighs> uh, they break camp at the end of this week, so it'll be a couple days after this podcast ends. I know because a certain minor league friend of ours will be sleeping on my couch on Saturday or Sunday night, so we'll be looking up, and then he'll be uh, he'll be up in your neck of the woods screaming at your front door. In uh, what we'll give it a week, I think. Yeah, I'll be up in Tacoma working with the Rainiers. Yeah, there we which go. Is awesome for Let's get to our interview now with Jim Callis. Before we get to our interview with Jim Callis, we're going to have a bonus episode released this Friday. TJ and I will do our prediction show where we make our season predictions for the Mariners' win total, some player props, and a whole lot more. We're still going to have a normal episode next Wednesday with another great guest, but be sure to check out this bonus episode on Friday as well for our season prediction show. We welcome Jim Callis onto the Marine Layer Podcast. Jim's a senior writer for MLB.com and MLB Pipeline. You can occasionally occasionally catch Jim on the MLB Network as well. Jim, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. How busy has your spring been so far? Um, this actually feels a little bit lighter. Like we just got done doing all of our top thirty prospects lists. And there have been years where I've been running around spring training and trying to write top 30 prospect lists at the same time. And so this year, <laughs> the way my schedule worked out, all my lists are done. So it feels a lot more uh, relaxed uh, than than some years. And I mean, really, it's been nice. I mean, this is the first time since 2019 we've had a, a spring training that hasn't been altered either by the pandemic or by the lockout. So it's kind of business as usual. So it's actually been as enjoyable as can be my, my four or five days in Arizona so far. Sounds like you enjoy your time a little bit more in Arizona than you do in Florida, at least talking to you a little bit before this recording started. Yeah, it's just, I mean, nothing against the, the great state of Florida. It's just, it's a lot easier. The spring training setup is definitely better in Arizona. All the teams are, an hour might be on the high end. Like all the teams are within, I think you can stay anywhere kind of in the radius and get to any of the parks in 45 minutes. And Florida is a lot more driving, a lot more humidity. So I'm headed to Florida. So hopefully I will enjoy Florida almost as much as I've enjoyed Arizona so far. And all the the, the teams in Arizona, for the most part, Sands, I think the Angels and the Cubs all share a facility, I think in the A's too. They all share a facility, so it, it cuts down on that travel even more. But in Florida, that's not really the case. I, I don't have it memorized, Jim. Do you remember which teams in Florida share? Do any of them share? Yeah, it's um, and in fact, I'm going. 
I, I get in kind of the easy part of Florida because, again, the five teams are close together. But Houston and Washington share West Palm Beach and um, Florida, the Miami and um, Miami and St. Louis share Jupiter. And Jupiter and West Palm Beach are within like a half hour of each other. So, um, so yeah, it, but, it, but it's, it's, it's a totally different setup. Um, you know, out here, I think the Brewers are solo. There's one other team, but the, the Giants are solo. But I think there's five pairs of teams that share facilities out here. And so what's nice is you double like I went out to do White Sox stuff today, but but I also I, I do our White Sox list and I do our Dodgers list just coincidentally, and they were playing the Dodgers on the backfield, so I got to see a bunch of you know and I went from one end of the complex to the other, so it was it was a great time. But yeah, it's uh, spring training very very fun time of year. Well, before we get into some Mariners talk more on this show, I did want to ask you a little bit about your career and how you've kind of built your way up to where you are now because. You're now, I mean, very arguably the go-to prospect writer in the whole industry. So how did you kind of work your way up to that as time's gone on? I guess I've gotten old, but uh, it's nice, it's <laughs> nice to, hear, to say loud. You know, it's funny because, I mean, I, I will sound old here, but like when I started, the industry was totally different. I mean, there really weren't places covering prospects other than Baseball America. And I read, I remember when I, you know, there was no internet back then. This was in the mid-80s when I started getting Baseball America. And it's just like, wow, they're covering the minor leagues, college baseball, and nobody else is covering this. And you couldn't really – ESPN had maybe a college game of the week in the College World Series. We couldn't really see much of those teams or players. You know, minor leaguers got almost no publicity before the – you know, there was none of this buildup for Julio Rodriguez. Like, like Ken, when I started Baseball America, there was probably more hype for Ken Griffey Jr. than there ever had been. And it's like a small, small percentage of what the hype was for Julio Rodriguez last year. Like everybody knew Julio. You had seen videos of Julio. You've seen Julio speak on social media. You'd seen him play on TV, you know, and all this stuff. It was different. But anyway, um, I, I covered baseball at the University of Georgia and I covered a lot of sports there. And I just, I thought Baseball America was just like a really cool magazine. And they had a very small staff at the time. And I, I got an internship there. And back then, you know, the, the, the industry is a lot different, too. I mean, there, there was no Internet. There were no blogs. There were no podcasts. Um, there wasn't there weren't really regional sports networks, except with a couple exceptions. And so if you wanted to write, if you want to go into sports writing, you would basically go work for your local paper and compile agate and cover high school football on Friday nights. And maybe you get a chance to write a feature now and then. And you kind of have to wait for an opportunity. And. You know, now, obviously, you could show, I mean, you guys are doing a podcast right now and people can blog and you can, you know, record video and do your own, you know, TV show you and, and post it on the on the net and people can see it. But um, but it was a great opportunity for me at Baseball America because instead of, you know, we don't, I was the fourth full time editorial employee at the time. So instead of like, you know, compiling box scores and covering high school football, you know, I was the main college baseball writer and I was helping out on the draft and prospect coverage and I was assigning stories and editing stories. And I think I was the photo editor at the time. I mean, everybody had to do everything because there was only four of us and we came out every two weeks. And so I was just fortunate right off the bat instead of, I mean, I worked real hard, but I didn't really have to pay my dues of doing, you know, grunt work of, you know, compiling box scores or whatever, or, you know, pulling type off the AP wire. I was going to College World Series right away. I went to Cuba for the Pan Am Games when I was, I guess, what, 23 years old. I was covering the Olympics in Barcelona at 24. 
And I, so I was, it was like right place, right time. And, you know, you kind of do stuff long enough. And I guess I've been doing this for, this is my 35th year now. I'm getting old. Um, and you just build up contacts. And then like the other thing that was great about Baseball America too was Alan Simpson, who, who founded the magazine, basically just because he loved the minor leagues. He loved college baseball, all the stuff the sporting news used to cover in the 70s and then got away from when they started to become more of an all sports magazine or the big four sports type of magazine. Alan, like he just did things right. Like when he did draft rankings or prospect rankings, he cared about getting, I mean, getting, I mean, you don't know that you're right at the time, but he cared about doing them right and getting them right rather than, you know, trying to, you know, do something shocking or outlandish to draw attention. And I think that everybody in baseball really respected the way Alan went about it. And so from day one, I mean, it was shocking to me. You know, I was 21 years old and like I could call, like I, I remember calling John Sherholtz, who was the GM of the Braves in spring training. And like, he didn't know who I was. And he called me back in like 15 minutes because I, I could say Jim Callis from Baseball America was the message. And you just had people like, it was great as starting. And I mean, again, I mean, I worked <laughs> probably 60 hour weeks all the time because we were doing everything. But it was cool. Like anybody I wanted to talk to in baseball would basically call me back because I was with Baseball America. So um, I do. You know, it's funny. I mean, I'm doing a lot of the same stuff. Not really covering college baseball the same way, but doing a lot of the same stuff I was doing 35 years ago. And it it still interests me. I still like trying to figure out, you know, which prospects are the best or who's going where in the draft. Um, but I I give a lot of credit to Baseball America and Alan Simpson, kind of for showing me how to go about doing this type of stuff when nobody else was doing it. And it's, it's a good process. And, you know, I, you know, I think if you do this for a number of years, you know, people know they can trust you and tell you stuff candidly and you're not going to, you know, attribute it to them. Or sometimes people tell you stuff, say, I don't want to see, you know, don't write this, but you know, blah, 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 when you're talking about players and they know that you're, you know, you can be trusted, you know, that just kind of builds and, and, and it makes it easier over the years to kind of build sources and talk to sources. And, you know, with the draft, with the draft especially, it's kind of nice because it's kind of a two-way street. Like a lot of times when we're doing prospect coverage, like I don't do our Mariners list, but when I'm doing, you know, whoever's list I'm doing, like teams know how good their players are or, or, you know, good or bad or whatever. But with the draft, like they may not have scouted a guy as heavily. And so we get asked all the time, you know, what are you hearing on this guy? Are our teams talking about him? Or even in the first round of the draft, at least until you can trade picks, you know, and then we'll probably be down the NFL path where everybody lies to everybody. But you can't trade picks in the, in the MLB draft. So it's not like everybody tells us this is who we're picking. But you could kind of be like a clearinghouse in a way of like if a team's picking 18th, like I want to know who they're hearing might go 14, 15, 16, 17. But they want to hear who I'm hearing because I'm talking to like – I'm spending a lot more time worrying about who's going where than the team is. And so it's like kind of a two-way street. Like I always enjoy that where I feel like it's not just me calling up and asking like, hey, how good's this guy? How's good's that guy? I mean, oversimplifying it. But like I can actually exchange information. So that too, like when you having again done this forever, you know, you've helped so many people over the years as they've helped you. It just makes it easier. Um, and it, it's weird. Like I've been doing this long enough. I mean, there are – I don't know if Tom ahead. There are a lot of GMs who I used to talk to when they were a farm director, or scouting director, or, or whatever. Who, you know, I mean, shoot, there's a lot of there's some farm directors and scouting directors I remember talking to when they were players. And I, and obviously, I've been doing this long enough. There's a lot of prospects 
I remember their dads covering their dads as, as prospects. So um, I think it gets easier after you've done it for a long time. It just you kind of build more and more sources. The Mariners farm system has gone through some drastic changes because all the blue chip guys you heard about are in the big leagues now. A lot of them are having a lot of success, but now their farm as a result looks different. So from your view, how different does it look compared to years past? And what are some of the strengths and weaknesses of the farm system now? Yeah, I mean, when Jerry Depoto at the beginning, you know, he was trading everybody left and right. And there was a while, I don't even think they had a top 100 prospect on the list. And then when they committed to rebuilding and they were making trades for prospects and not trading prospects away, their farm system was one of the best in the game. And then obviously, as you, you know, you graduate Julio Rodriguez, you graduate, I still, I'm still not sure what to make of Jerry Kelnick, but Jerry Kelnick was an elite, elite prospect, you know, uh, I'm like George Kirby graduated. Um, why am I drawing? Who's well, I'm drawing a total blank on the picture from Stetson Logan Gilbert. I, I, oh, yeah. I was thinking Logan Warmoth, the guy from North Carolina, who's <laughs> not had a successful career. I knew it wasn't Logan Warmoth, but I was getting hung up. But anyway, you, you, you're graduating guys like that who are all like upper echelon prospects. You know, your system is going to take a hit. I mean, I still think they have some interesting guys, and I think it, it's the farm system rankings. We haven't done our new ones yet, so I don't know where we're going to have the marriage exactly. Are so cyclical. Because like a team like the Dodgers right now or the Braves when they were on their long stretch of win division titles are the exception where you win and your farm system remains strong every year. Because especially now with the bonus pool system internationally and in the draft, if you win, you get less money to spend on the draft. Um, and, and so you can't – even if you're, you're a team that's willing to spend $10, $12 million on the draft every year, if you win, you might have a 5 or $6 million bonus pool and you can't do that. So, I mean, the, the nice thing I think is from the Mariners' standpoint is they do have a number of interesting guys. They brought in a bunch of interesting guys last year, you know, Cole Young, you know, Walter Ford at the top of the draft, you know, Felden Celestin, you know, just out of the uh, most recent international period. So it's just, it's like, whereas the last couple of years, last two, three years, you had a bunch of prospects, you know, on the verge of making the best prospects on the verge of making their big league debuts. Now, a lot of their better prospects are, you know, probably two, three years away. What do you think the upside of it? Like, is this a, is this a, say we check back in at the end of July with this system where the, the Mariners' best prospects, as you just mentioned, are all young guys. Harry Ford's young. Celestin, who they just signed, is young. I mean, we like Lazaro Montes, who they signed last year in the international class, young. Cole Young from the, the, the 2022 drafts, number 21 overall pick, a 19-year-old. Plus, Three first round picks in the first round uh, in the first round in this upcoming July draft. So, say we check in on this system in July, is there a real chance that it's you know back near the top fifteen? Yeah, I mean it's too it's weird too because farm system the rankings are very volatile. You know, because again, most you know prospects don't develop in a linear fashion where you know the guys gets gradually better, gradually you know like guys get better, guys get worse, guys get hurt. Um, you know, and and so like they could, their young guys are super interesting. But like you mentioned, like a lot of those guys haven't really done much yet, or even had the opportunity. Walter Ford's another super interesting guy who would have been in this year's draft if he hadn't reclassified. Um, and I think he could take a big step forward too. So if you get these guys who go out and they start playing, you know, full season ball, um, you know, Celestin will probably play rookie ball, obviously somewhere, because um, he's just seventeen. But these guys go out and they start to play well, like. 
I mean, Cole Young didn't miss our top 100 by much. You know, Celestin, it's hard to go crazy on international guys early. So he's maybe, a, you know, a year or so away from the top 100. But, like, maybe Gabriel Gonzalez cracks the top 100. Maybe, uh, yeah, I don't want like to make Emerson Hancock. Maybe Emerson Hancock jumps back in. But, yeah, I, I do think they have a number of guys who are with upside. And like you mentioned, with three early picks in the draft, like that's, you know, I I can't remember. I don't know if top, you guys probably do better than me, like what exactly those picks are. But, like, you know, that might be, like, a top 100 guy and then a couple guys who are, you know, close to making the top 100. So, like, yeah, I think when we do our midseason rankings, it probably makes sense. Like, if I had to guess, they probably will move up because, A, the draft picks, and, B, when you have, they're not losing guys. Like, I don't think looking at their top 10 prospects list, I mean, maybe Bryce Miller. Like, his, his stuff's pretty good. He can move fast. But outside of Bryce Miller, I don't think they're really going to lose any of their top prospects to the big leagues. And if you know, their younger guys get better – or even are as good as we think they are, and they just prove it against better competition, then they're going to look stronger too. And Tyler Lockler is another guy I should have mentioned in last year's draft, who, you know, we'll see where he fits positionally. But he hit the ball. He hits the ball about as hard as anybody out of last year's draft class. And I mean, like, the entire draft class, not just the Mariners draft class. And so, like, as those guys get more established, I think the system could look, you know, significantly better at midseason. Their top prospect, of course, being Harry Ford, you know, catcher taken in the first round of the 2021 draft. When you guys described him in, on his bio on the MLB Pipeline website, there are some comparisons that you guys gave him to Craig Biggio, who obviously is a Hall of Famer. Um, but what about his game warrants that comparison? Yeah, I think it's just you just don't see catchers who are as athletic as Harry. I mean, he's a plus runner. Like he could, I think he could legitimately, you could probably play him almost anywhere in the diamond, you know, from an athletic standpoint. I mean, he's got plus arm strength and plus speed. Um, And, you know, you know, maybe you get to a point at some point where you're like, like the Astros did with Biggio, like, look, this guy is really athletic. Do we want the catching to grind that out of him? And, And do we want, you know, maybe the offense to blossom even more if he's not getting worn down by catching. But, like, I think that's the main reason. And, yeah, I mean, he's obviously the pride of Great Britain that right now as well as the pride of Seattle. But, I mean, he can hit too. Um, you know, super young, super athletic. Um, you just don't see many catchers like that. I mean, you know, Biggio was one. You know, Maurer was kind of a taller athlete. Um, you know, he, Harry Ford's got more of that Biggio build, but like, that's why it's just, it's, it's just really unusual athleticism for a catcher. How valuable is that WBC experience? You, you could make the case that throwing a 20 year old into a a tournament with a bunch of, you know, grown, uh, you know, professionals could be detrimental to their, their progress. It could, you know, shake the confidence a little bit. But I don't think that's the case for Harry. He's um, he's thrived in that environment. Yeah, I mean, I think the way teams look at it is, you know, on, like for most of those guys, they're not going to play more than four games anyway, you know, unless you get, you know, through the through the round robin. So, like, even if Harry Ford went 0 for 15, like, it's probably not going to – it's not like, you know, you're playing a month and if he hits, like, 100 and 120 at-bats, he starts to question himself. So I think most teams look at it as a – Opportunity, like 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 you could only benefit from it, you know. Like like it was it was brief enough that if you struggled, it, it wouldn't weigh on you. But like yeah, no, I mean, you know, again, it's it's just four games, but he played very well. He hit a couple home runs. 
um, really made a name for himself. You know, the I think maybe less so on the Great Britain team, just because they didn't have as many big leaguers. But like, you get exposed to big leaguers. Like, and I, you know, maybe the Mariners had guys on other teams. Well, I mean, I, I don't know who they who they would have run into necessarily. But like, he might have interacted with big leaguers on other teams. It's just kind of being in that kind of big time environment. Like, 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 even if he struggled, I think it would have been a positive because I doubt he's ever played in an environment with that kind of electricity and, you know, you know, at the ballpark and people being interested in it. And it just kind of gives you a small taste of, hey, like, this is what you're going to be dealing with in the big leagues. And, and he obviously handled it well, too. What's the biggest thing you're looking for in his development this year to take that next step as a prospect? I think it's probably the catching, just the consistency of the catching. I mean, I mean, look, you can improve in all phases of your game when you're that young. But, I mean, he's hit for average. Um, I think there's more power in there. Like, I mean, he's young. You know, catching wears you down. Um, I, I think, you know, his power is probably going to blossom a little bit more. Um, he draws a lot of walks. Um, he's got the arm. I think it's just probably – like, the biggest need is probably just to get more consistent with his receiving. I don't know that I, like that's a really profound statement for me because I like I think you could say that about any twenty year old catcher that he could improve his receiving like that's just the nature of the game um, and he's not terrible like it's not like you look at him you're like ah, I don't know if Harry can stay behind the plate it's not that at all it's just he's young and he hasn't caught a whole lot you know professionally and he, he needs more experience so going off that with the idea that he's probably athletic enough to play some other positions. Is this the year we might start to see the Mariners test him out at a few different positions from time, from time to time? I don't necessarily think so. I, I don't, I don't think that you want, what I, what I don't think you want to do is I don't think you want to just experiment with him for the sake of experimenting. Like if you want him, if you, if you're trying to make him a catcher, you want him to focus on catching. And I think it's like, Maybe distracting is the best word. If it's like, hey, we're going to play a little second. We're going to play a third. We're going to have you run around the outfield. Like, that's putting a lot on his plate. I think it's more if you got to the point where you decided, hey, we've got a better defensive option at catcher. I mean, let's say – and I'm not saying they've done this. Let's say that, you know, let's say this year, let's say Cal Raleigh goes out and he hits 27 homers again. and and you like his defense, and you're like, you know what? We like Cal Raleigh catcher, but we need a second baseman. Then you move Harry. Like I, I think if you're going to move him, you move him full time. I don't think you say, okay, we're going to play him. Through, you know, move him here and there and see what he looks like. I, I think you move him if you're going to switch his position. Otherwise, I think you develop him as a catcher because he needs the reps behind the plate. How special is it of his that, he, you know, he's a 19-year-old kid in his first professional experience playing against, you know, some really, really talented guys. And he still goes out there, shakes off a two-month slow start, and ends the year with an on-base percentage of over 42%. I mean, that's that's pretty insane for a teenager who who's just getting exposed to the big leagues, the, the big leagues, to the minor leagues for his first time, and just doesn't seem to be, like, wavered at all. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Um, and, and the, I, I don't think statistics, statistics I think this, the importance of statistics or, or minor league performance rises as you rise through the minors. Like if he got out and hit 230 with a 330 on base percentage, 
I wouldn't have been especially troubled because I would have said, like you just did, oh, he's 19, it's his introduction to pro ball. Hey, he's trying to catch too. And like that, that requires a lot of time and effort and focus. But the, the stat, like if I had to look at one stat for hitters and for pitchers, I guess it's combo stat. But anyway, it would be strikeout to walk ratio. It's like how well you control the strike zone. And that, and that's like what was really impressive is, you know, because again, I can't under emphasize how demanding catching is. Like this is first, like, you know, Harry's coming out of high school where you might play what, two or three games a week. And now you're playing seven games a week or six games a week. And granted, he's not catching all six, but like it's a lot, <laughs> the season's a lot longer than, than it was when he was back in high school in Georgia. And to be able to keep that kind of focus and discipline and approach at the plate is, is, is really, really impressive. And that's why, like I was saying before, like he only, he only hit 11 homers. He's 19 years old and low A. And I think we'll see more power out of him as he continues to get older and more experienced. Like it was, it was a really impressive year for him. Their top pitching prospect, of course, being Bryce Miller, fourth round pick out of Texas A&M, wasn't not all that big of a build, but man, you look at him in spring training this year, along with the season he had last year, he's generating all the buzz on the Mariners farm right now. What about the improvement? Or I was just going to say, what about the improvements he made really stood out to people like yourself to say, okay, his ceiling just jumped up a bit. Yeah, you know, with him, I think it was really a matter of getting an opportunity. Like, he, he spent a year junior college at Blinn, and then he transferred to AM, and he was in their bullpen for a couple of years. They had a, a, several pitchers he got drafted, and so he really didn't get a chance to start until his draft year. Um, you know, I, I think had we had a normal draft in 2020, like, he had offers to go in the top five rounds, even though he really hadn't pitched a whole lot. There were teams on him, and, you know, they got a chance to play. Um, you know, dominated, got to double A. He's got that fastball that's in vogue. You know, it's, it, it, I mean, it averages 95, which is obviously good, but it's, it's just the shape and the carry and the induced vertical break. Guys just do not hit his fastball. And he's got some power to his slider. He's got a curveball that's a distinct second breaking ball. Um, he's got some feel for change, even though he hasn't, you know, pitched a lot of innings. He didn't really use it in the bullpen. He, um, I, I think the biggest, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but the, you know, I'll, I'll use the word surprise. He, you know, for a guy who doesn't have like the cleanest delivery, like there's like, it's pretty high tempo delivery times. He threw a lot of strikes last year in his pro debut. Again, while, you know, I, I don't know what his career high for innings was at A&M, but it wasn't, you know, he pitched 134 innings last year for the Mariners in the minors. It wasn't, it wasn't close to 134. And that, you know, he was able to keep his stuff all year and throw strikes all year. So he's he's pretty – I actually think it's weird because we rate prospects. So I guess I shouldn't say anybody's underrated because we should just rate them higher if that's the case. But, like, I do think <laughs> he's underrated as a prospect a little bit just in general. Maybe, you know, he wasn't a first-round pick and he wasn't, you know, a three-year starter at A&M. But his stuff is really, really good. What about – what is it about the Mariners' development that really allowed him to sort of burst? Because like we could, you could always see the talent, and you mentioned guys were on him even in his junior year when he's not playing all that much in A and M. But he was kind of a middling college pitcher, right? If we look at results, it the the results really just weren't there for him. And he comes into the Mariners' system, and his you know his walk rate especially just plummets. He his whip is you know right around one after sitting at around one three one four while he's in college. And all of a sudden, it's like, hey, I'm striking guys out. I'm not going to walk anyone. 
And really, it just all of a sudden, I burst onto the scene as a top 100 pitcher, uh, yeah, as a fourth round pick. I just, I just think it's kind of crazy, and I'm just curious what you think really clicked for him. You know, I don't think it's so much that they did anything, like they changed anything or anything like super significant along those lines. And especially too, like when you draft a guy, you usually let him kind of go out there and show what he could do before you start making changes. Um, you know, especially with pitchers. I think it was as much as anything, probably the confidence they gave him, but like, look, it's different. Like you're not in SEC, you're trying to win. Like, I mean, you are trying to develop your players too, but the SEC programs, if you don't win, the coach is getting fired. Like it's not going to be like, Oh, He's produced a lot of big leaguers. No, you need to win or they're going to have a new coach. And, you know, if you look, like his role kind of changed and, you know, he bounced back and forth a little bit between starting and relieving, even even in his final year there. Um, and I think, yeah, I think the consensus from Sky, Texas is one of my draft states, so he was a guy I had in the draft. And talking to scouts is he was the kind of guy they felt would be better as a pro when it's like, look, just go out there and pitch. You don't have to worry if you if you walk a guy – or you walk two guys, it might be a quick hook, or you might be out of the rotation this week into the bullpen the next. Like, we think you're a star. You know, once the team gets him and says, we think you're a starter, just go out there, work on your pitches, you know, let the results happen. Don't worry about it. You're a starter. I think that might have um, been as important as anything, really. Do you see him as a starter in the big leagues with, with yeah. that delivery? I, I, I do. I mean – Here's the thing, like, <laughs> this is something else that's changed a lot. So, you know, back in the day, you know, guys, starters would go, you know, seven. Yeah, I, I remember when the quality starts started being used, people were like, six innings? That's not a quality start. Like, what are you talking about, six innings? Now, now if your starter goes six innings, you're like, oh, my God, like, you know, he went through the order a third time. Or it was just part of, it's totally different. And so back in the day when you wanted a guy who had that really clean delivery that he could repeat because – you know, you want to be able to throw 120 pitches and go nine innings. We're not asking guys to do that anymore. Like pretty much everybody, it's like go out there, max out your stuff, and when you get tired, we're going to bring in the next guy. And unless you, you know, you're an elite, elite starter, most of your starters, you're going to pitch, you know, five or so innings, and we're not really going to have you go through the order a third time that much. So, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is, like, do I think – like Bryce Miller's delivery would be conducive to pitching 225 innings in a season? No, not really. But we're not asking guys to do that anymore. So, yeah, I think he's a starter. I think he's got like a well above average fastball, a solid to plus slider, curveball and changeup are effective, and he throws enough strikes. Like there's a pretty good pitch. I mean, you could also argue you don't really need a third pitch to start these days either. Because you're only going through the order twice, but he's he's got enough pitches, he's got enough feel um, that I do think he's a starter. So long term, you have the confidence that he's a starter, but for this year, obviously the Mariners have some pretty good depth in their rotation between the big four and Castillo, Ray, Gilbert, Kirby, Marco Gonzalez is going to be the five. They even have Chris Flexen in their bullpen. But if Bryce Miller starts dominating in the minors again, and they're ready to bring him up. Do you think they wait until there's a potential opening in the rotation? Or do you think they take the Julio Urias, Dustin May route that the Dodgers did and kind of start him in the bullpen and just let him get, get some big league innings until he eventually moves to a starter? Yeah, I think the latter, Lyle, because it's um, – one, again, stars aren't going that deep. 
So you can use him in a role where he's maybe pitching three innings at a time in relief. And, you know, like, I mean, that's a valuable role too. Like, and I actually think that's a great way to break guys into the big leagues. I, I go back to when I was a kid growing up in Northern Virginia and we didn't have a team in Washington. The closest team was the Orioles. So we had Orioles games on TV. And the Orioles had a lot of success with pitching. Now, one of the reasons was they had like some great defensive teams. Earl Weaver, I think, was ahead of the game in realizing how much defense impacted pitching. But the other thing they did, and they were really successful with it, they very rarely had rookies come up and debut as starters, in part because they always had good starters, you know, Jim Palmer and company. But they would bring guys in and they would pitch like 100 innings in a middle relief role, you know, go, yeah, and it was just a way to kind of get them acclimated to the big leagues without putting a ton of pressure on them, without putting heavy workload on them. And so like, I actually think what you're saying is, is a great way to develop big league pitchers. And that would almost in some ways be the best thing for Bryce Miller, because like, you know, if he's ready to pitch in the big leagues and let's say you're fortunate and your five starters stay healthy all year, like why waste the bullets in AAA? Get him up to the big leagues. And, you know, on a day where, you know, maybe Marco Gonzalez is your fifth starter and he only goes three and a third, you know, maybe, you know, you bring Bryce Miller in, he gives you three and two thirds innings and, and gets you to the eighth inning. So, yeah, I could definitely see them doing the latter. A guy who's not projected to be in the big leagues this year, but the Mariners first round pick last year, 21st overall, Cole Young. I mean, the coming out of you know, Pennsylvania high school, the 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 clamor about him was was his bat and he 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 hit right away in the system last year what you know that's like that's the focus for him this year I mean it's like the Mariners are uh, are, are they worried about like the defensive position or are they just going to say hey Cole even if like you know the projections say you might not be a shortstop long term we just want you to go out and hit this year and, and crush pitching as a 19 year old yeah, I mean, and I mean, there's some of that. I mean, like especially too, like the way the draft is so late now, like guys just don't get to play. He's only played 17 pro games, so the main thing is to go out and I mean, it's kind of a shock to everybody's system when you play that first full professional season. Again, you know, Cole played in Pennsylvania, and like he probably played I don't know 25 or 30 games last year in high school, and he probably played three games a week or whatever. You know, now he's playing six straight games every week for five months, and that's like. A huge difference. So a big part of that first season, you know, let's get back to Harry Ford when I was saying, like, I didn't really care about his numbers that much, is, you know, like a lot of guys learn, like I was just talking to the White Sox today about Colson Montgomery, who had a really good season last year for them. He's their best prospect. But he also wore down at the end of the season, which is natural for these guys. And so part of that first season isn't even just performance. It's like, okay, understanding what it's going to take, how you have to prepare in the off season to be ready to get through that grind. And so I think we, with Cole – um, the other thing you do kind of at the beginning of guy's career is like, even if like, yeah, I think there's some question, is he a shortstop long-term? Like he's probably more of a second baseman. It, it, but we say that about everybody. And some of these guys do stick it short, but, but they're like, we don't know. Is he short time? You said you play the guy at the more difficult position early in his career to see what you have. So like, I'm sure he's going to go out and be the shortstop this season. And you know, then they'll decide where they want to go next year. I mean, I, I don't think they're going to move him anytime soon. It's more, He's probably an average-ish big league shortstop, but it's it's weird because like you think, boy, an average big league shortstop that's pretty good. But most teams want don't want an average defender at shortstop if that makes sense. So like the typical big league shortstop is probably an above average to plus defender. Um, 
which is weird. Then you can debate what average really means. But, um, you know, I think he could play shortstop. You probably would say we'd want somebody who's who's better, but he could play shortstop. But, yeah, they'll roll him out as shortstop this year and hope he keeps hitting. Like, he had one of the best high school bats in the draft, and you know, he can run. Um, I don't think he's going to be a big power guy, but he might be that, like, 280 to 315 home run type. Um, and, like, to me, that's fine. Like, if he can't – I'm pretty convicted he'll hit. Um, if he can't play shortstop, that still plays at second base. There, There is a little bit of optimism that he can add a little bit more power into that bat, right? I mean, I'm not saying he's going to be a 30 home run guy, but there seems to be some optimism that there's still more pop to come with him. Yeah, I mean, he, he look, I mean, he's young. He can get stronger. Um, he has really good hitting ability. And so the guys who have hitting ability – it's a lot easier to hit hit for average first and power later than it is to be a guy who's got big raw power and swings at everything and chases and then figure out how to hit. So he's got the hit part down pretty well already. But yeah, I mean, you know, I'd say 15 would be kind of the median of where his power falls. But if you tell me that he could be, I mean, it's a really good swing. And if he got stronger, I think he's added supposedly 12 or 15 pounds in the off season. Um, you know, he's going to continue to mature physically. I, I could see 20-plus. I mean, that, that's not unrealistic at all. And you would envision he's spending all season in, in low-A Modesto? Not necessarily. I mean, I think you just – you have to see – I don't have their, their kind of depth chart committed memory, but, like, I mean, he's one of their best prospects. So if Cole goes to single-A and he hits 320 in the first three months of the season, well, I'll put it this way. When Cole accomplishes everything, he when he shows that like he's accomplished everything he accomplished in single A, they're going to promote him to high A. It doesn't matter if that's May or July or next year. He's a priority prospect. So like when Cole's ready to move up to the next level, Cole will move up, and whoever's playing shortstop that level will you know move to a different position or whatever. See, I, I he's talented enough. It wouldn't shock me if he spent you know, a month at the end of the season or, or more in, in high A. We're just kind of going down the list here. I mean, per MLB pipeline, Harry Ford's the Mariners' number one prospect, Bryce Miller's number two, Cole Young's number three, and number four is Emerson Hancock, a guy who I know, Jim, you were really high on when he was coming out of the draft at Georgia. Jerry DePoto said when they took him that they believed he was the best pitcher in that draft. He's battled some injuries the last couple of years. He's healthy now. Is there still a chance that if he's healthy and on the field, he could return to having the upside that people believed he had when he was drafted? Um, I guess the way – I don't know. Like, I thought he had a chance to be a frontline starter. And now I'd say he's more of a mid-rotation guy. It would be the ceiling to me. Um, I don't think it, – it's weird. Yeah, I went to Georgia, so I followed him closely. He was a contender to go number one overall in the 2020 draft. But I think realistically, like he, in 2019, when he was a sophomore, he came out in the first like eight or 10 starts a year. He was the best pitcher in the country, which is why he was came to go number one. And he had a minor injury and he missed a couple starts and then he came back. And like, he's never been, even at Georgia, he was not that dominant ever again. Now, part of that's a little unfair because the next season was the pandemic season, which never really got going. Um, you know, since the Mariners drafted him, I think he had what, shoulder issues in 21. They get lat issues in 22. Um, the stuff isn't as crisp 
as it as it used to be. It's more, I think, average to solid than solid to plus. Um, you know, he still throws strikes. Um, I will say he looks really good at the futures game. Like he like I mean, great. It's a one inning look, and and you know, you could get amped up, and you don't have to pace yourself. I, I thought he looked really good at the futures game last year. So. Um, I, I think I think the biggest thing the Mariners want out of Emerson Hancock in 2023 is stay healthy for an entire season, so we can see exactly what we have in you. And you know, and he might be, like I said, I mean, when we were just talking about, I mean, they, they they have a pretty loaded rotation right now. They got Bryce Miller ahead of him. You know, maybe he winds up being more that multi inning reliever than you know a three, four, or five starter. But those guys are still valuable too. Um, yeah, I, I just think the key is. Stay healthy for a full year, and then we can see exactly what we got. Would you anticipate that with a healthy season, his velocity also comes back up? Because I noticed that was also a major ding from last year. Yeah, his velocity was down. Yeah, I mean, it could. I mean, if he had a fully healthy season and the shoulder and the lat aren't bothering him, it's just the concern is in the last three full seasons he's had, I'm not counting 2020 because of the pandemic and he barely pitched, He's had physical issues. So, like, you start to wonder about the durability a little bit, too. We're just go again, just kind of going down the list here. At number five, we've got Felnine Sellison. And after him, we'll kind of jump around to some other guys that jump out to TJ and I that we wanted to ask you about. But Sellison, the highest international signing the Mariners have ever made, signed for just under $5 million. He may have the highest upside of anybody in the Mariners' system. And you guys said he has a chance to be the highest rated or, or highest upside shortstop of any international shortstop in about a decade. So it sounds like you guys think if everything pans out, this guy could be really, really special. He could. I, I will say I did not write that scouting report and say he has a higher ceiling than Wander Franco. Ah, I might quibble yeah. that. Um, uh-huh. it's weird. Like the three guys I, who, when we whoever wrote the report cited were Wander Franco, who's like one of the best minor league hitters you'll ever see. Marco Luciano, mm-hmm. who's a 40 home run shortstop. So I'm not sure if he has a higher ceiling than, than I'm not saying Luciano is going to hit 40 home runs, but he's got that ceiling. And he mentions Robert Poisson, who's been a huge disappointment for the A's. Like, I don't, I don't know why. I mean, Robert Poisson was a big ticket guy, but like to make the point, I might not have included Robert Poisson in there because um, I hope he has a higher ceiling than Robert Poisson does now. Um, but but the point is, but yes, he's he's extremely talented. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's always hard figuring out where to rank these international guys um, because I mean, not only I mean he's 17 now, but like these guys usually commit early, so it's not like he's really been seen a lot in the last couple of years. But if you want to dream, and he hasn't played pro ball yet, I mean, he's you know an athletic shortstop who's going to get more physical. He's already got some physicality to him. And again, I'm just saying this is his upside. I'm not saying, oh, he's going to do this. But yeah, he could be a 30-30 guy who hits for average and stays a shortstop, which is a really good player. Like It's really easy to dream on, dream on him at this point. We're probably two years away then from getting a real read on, on what kind of player the Mariners have. Yeah, I mean... This year, I mean, I, he's he's excited. I mean, you could bring him to the Arizona Complex League, but like whether he plays in the Dominican Summer League or the ACL, I don't really think we're going to see him in full season ball. If we do, it would be like for a week at the end of the season or something. Um, so like he might tear up rookie ball. 
or he might not. Sometimes the highly rated guys don't right away. But like, I, I think we like, you don't really get a full read on what guys like that are. It was true with Noel Marte, who they traded. It was true with Julio Rodriguez until they get to that first year in full season ball. And that's when, like, oh, if he performs his first year in full season ball, then you run the guy way up the list. So uh, where was Wander at the end of his first season? I don't remember. He went – see, he was different. Because, like, you can't, yeah. like, like, because you can't you – can't <laughs> he went to the Appalachian League, which no longer exists, which is a rookie – it's an advanced rookie level. It's above um, complex league ball. But you, the, the league, no, that classification no longer exists, so that's not a possibility. It, it was so it was short. It was short season. Well, no, I mean, yeah, it was in between. You know, like short season, like a was the Northwest and the New York Penn League, and you had the Appy League, oh, and the right. League were rookie advanced leagues, and then you had the at the time the Gulf Coast League and the Arizona League were complex leagues. So it was in between, but like it was a really aggressive assignment for a seventeen-year-old kid. And if I recall, he was like MVP. Like Vladimir Greer Jr. tore up the Appy League, and Wander Franco went in and put up even better numbers. Um, so if I, I think I'm remembering that right. Um, but in any case, they challenged him in a way that you couldn't even challenge Celestine if if you wanted to, because again, that level doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, that's crazy. I, it will not be the same path for for him. Yeah, you can't. You can't. Even, if, even if Jerry Depoto and company said we want to send him to the Appy League, there is no Appy League, so they can't. <laughs> I still come away from that breakdown that you gave us on Celestin positive for sure. Well, because, okay, it's definitely, but, it's definitely positive. Yeah. I, I would just say, well, where you could certainly dream on these guys, and he's super interesting. And I I wrote up some guys. As well, like like Sebastian Walcott with the Rangers and Dernishi Valdez with the Cubs and a bunch of my like um, Brando Maia with the Yankees. I think half of my top ten list had a very prominent signing. I I just would not necessarily have compared any of those guys to Wander. Well, you know what? I I should I should I should take that back because I am and I look I heard the comps. I'm the same guy who wrote that people were comparing Jason Dominguez of the Yankees. To Mickey Mantle and Bo Jackson, Mike Trapp. So, I, I I actually apologize. I guess what I was just gonna say, I would not have compared him to those guys, but I did that with Jason Dominguez. So, if somebody gave me that comparison, I would have used it. So, so, so there. I just, I think he's really interesting. I think Wander Franco was a cut above. Wander Franco was kind of on his own shortstop tier when he signed internationally, and Celestine is is kind of in that next tier guys who you get really excited about. Okay, so not quite an eighty hit tool, but still could be really yeah, good. Again, to, I take that. We're not going to bad yet. He has to wait to get the eighty. Yeah, I think that's fair. Well, those are the top five Mariners prospects. Regardless, there are still some really interesting guys as you go further down the list who people should be excited to watch as the year goes on. You know, a guy that's pretty interesting, Taylor Dollar. TJ and I actually both saw him. TJ more so than me when he was in the Cape Cod League, and he was really good back then. And you fast forward all of a sudden now, he had a phenomenal year in double A. But that being said, if the Mariners wanted to bring him up, you would be able to answer this better than me. But I'm not so sure his stuff profiles in the bullpen. So I guess my question is, what is his path to the big leagues? Yeah, I mean, 
his best attribute is his control. Like his best pitch is probably slider. You know, we've got 55 on the slider, 60 on the control. The rest of the stuff is average or fringy. Um, he's not, he's, he's a high floor guy rather than a high ceiling guy, like more of a guy you pitch in the, you know, he's a, he's a pitchability righty who would eat innings in the back of the rotation. Or like sometimes those guys could be valuable as openers or as, you know, again, a multi-inning reliever. Um, and I agree, like, you know, even if, like, I, I think we all think, like, okay, you put the guy in the bullpen, he's going to throw a little bit harder. And that's usually true. It's not, like, automatic. But if, like, he gained two miles an hour going to the bullpen, he'd probably be throwing 93. And that's not, you know, it's not like he, he's not going to blow you away with stuff. Like, he, he, if you put him in the bullpen, he's a middle reliever. It's not like you're bringing in Taylor Dollard in the eighth or ninth inning with the game on the line to shut the door because he doesn't have that kind of stuff. But he can really, really pitch. Um, it's just, it's his feel for pitching is what stands out the most. So I agree. Like, I don't think it's, it's probably more if they bring him up. I mean, again, I think it's gonna be hard to crack the rotation given the guys they have and Bryce Miller's not too far away either, but I could see him being that kind of multi-inning reliever, you know, who, who maybe pitches 90 or hundred innings a year at the big league level and, you know, eats some innings and, you know, your starter gets knocked out in the third and he keeps you in the game for three or four innings. He's more of that floor guy. It's really funny, Jim, because when I saw him pitching for the Cape League team I called games for back in uh, 2019, he was the closer and he was blowing guys away with really? 90. I thought he was I thought he was throwing a lot harder, but we didn't have a gun at the on the scoreboard. At least you'd have to peer down out of the press box and look yeah. at the stalkers which down team, below you. Which team was it? It was the Whitey Red Sox. OK, Scott right, with the donut burger, which is Scott now Pickle. yeah a pick with the now discontinued uh, donut burger. If that's it, uh, that- if that's memory. We could talk about Pick forever. But I was like, that's classic Pick. Oh, my God. Which is why he's won, what, six Cape Championships? Five? However many of these? Uh, it's a bunch. I think it's six. Yeah, yeah. I think it might be six. I think, anyway, I was gonna say, I, I'm like, pretty sure it's six. And, and you know, having top prospects, you know, bunt and situational drills in a, in a showcase league, which <laughs> is just, <laughs> he's just 10 out of 10. His guys execute. And I'm just, I, what I was going to say about Scott Pickler, who's – I think he's still the coach at Cypress Junior College. When he's not coaching the Cape? I think he's a legacy coach there. I'm not, okay. I don't hey, believe we, he's still coaching, but call, yeah, I've been out of it now for four years, I think. So I don't want to call Pick old, but I call myself old, so I can call Pick old too. So like he, 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 he might be whatever at, at Cyprus. But anyway, he always brings in players, a lot of them from the West Coast, and his guys just execute. And what I was going to say is, it does not shock me that Dollar throws strikes. It's a wood bat league. He puts the ball where he wants. Probably very hard to do a lot of damage against him with wood bat, especially, you know, with the way he, he moves the ball around, that it does mm-hmm. not surprise me that Pick would make him a closer. At the big league level, I don't know that even if he threw a little bit harder, like like you got him up to 92, 93, that that's going to play in the late innings. But but he can really pitch. And, you know, I actually – I think to me, it's almost more fun to watch guys who can pitch and have to move the ball around and mix their pitches rather than the guy who max effort throws 98 and just tries to overpower you. So I, I like watching guys like Taylor Dollard. And I I do think he's a big leaguer. Realistically, he I mean, pitchers get hurt. He, he might be in the wrong organization. To, he, I guess what I'm trying to say is, better way to put it, he'd get a better chance to start in a different organization because the Mariners have some really good starting pitchers in the big leagues. And they have Bryce Miller coming too, but um, I, I wouldn't be shocked. I, I bet we see Taylor Dollar in the big leagues this year. 
What the way I think about it, like if Dollard was say three years earlier, I mean he might have Marco Gonzalez's role right now. Yeah. Right. I mean that's because that's kind of, that's kind of what Marco Gonzalez is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Marco's left-handed, but yeah, he's he's basically the right-hand version of Marco Gonzalez. I think that's that's very fair. Uh, another guy I think we want to touch on from the international scene for the Mariners that was the, that the Mariners signed last year was Lazaro Montes. I mean, he spent the last last season in the in the Dominican Summer League. It was a it was you know an up and down year. He showcased a lot of power. He had I think ten home runs in fifty five games. He struck out over thirty percent of the time. I'm just curious what you what you thought of him uh, when he signed, and what I guess what you'd want to see out of him this year besides just cutting down on the strikeouts. Yeah, I mean he's he's interesting. I mean in the DSL for your listeners who aren't maybe not familiar with it, it's a lot of guy. You know, it's a lot of Dominicans, international players in their first year of pro ball. A lot of them are seventeen years old. You know, as was Montez last year. So it's kind of the stats don't necessarily mean a ton. Um, it'd be like looking at high school stats. That said, mm-hmm. like he had, you know, I mean, he had 10 home runs. I mean, it's the classic. There's huge power. There's huge swing and miss concerns. Um, you know, again, like we were saying with, with Celestine, you just don't really know what you have in those guys. Like you'll have a better, we'll have a, a little bit better idea when it comes to the Arizona Complex League this year, but you really won't have a full idea of what exactly he might be like, or how much contact he's going to make, how well the power is going to play until he gets to full season ball, which would probably be 2024. Um, when it'll be 19, he'll still be young. He'll be 19 years old. But, like, he's, you know, big-time power, decent athlete, you know, probably a left fielder, but he's got that profile power that you want in a left fielder. It's just a matter of, you know, the next couple of years we'll find out. Like, I mean, 33% strikeout rate is pretty high for the DSL because it's not like you're facing a lot of, polished pitchers um but you know until we see him in the u.s like is it approach based is he just chasing stuff does he have a particular hole in the swing that they can make an adjustment um i think the swing can get long at times i mean you can learn to correct that um so it'll be you'll know, we'll have to see how it plays out but like his, his power potential i mean shoot he's what 19 years 18 years old like you want to make him 19 he's 6'3 210 and he's 18 years old um which makes you wonder like how big is this guy going to be when he's fully physically mature and how much power he might have. Speaking of comps, I don't think comparing him to Jordan Alvarez when he signed, I, I forget who, who tabbed him that, but that probably well, didn't do him any, any, any favors be, given that Jordan is one of the most complete hitters in the league in his early twenties. I mean, I guess if you're, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't always love comps and like they can put, you know, pressure on a player. And again, I know <laughs> I wrote about Jason Dominguez, but like, I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess for his age, he was a big physical left-handed hitter who was probably going to wind up in left field. So see, that's the problem with comps is like, so along those lines, yes, you could say he's similar to Jordan Alvarez at the same, the same stage of their careers, but then someone who doesn't look at comps, like how they're intended would be like, Oh, they're saying this guy's going to be Jordan Alvarez, who's one of the best hitters in baseball. Like, there's a there's a long way to go from where he is now to where Jordan Alvarez is today, which again shouldn't be surprising because I think Jordan is what eight years older than the Montez. So <laughs> there's 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 some around there. 
there should be a great distance between where Montes is and where Alvarez is now. But like, I get, I'm not gonna say I endorse that comp, but I could see why you'd make it. Cause he, like I said, he's this big physical left-handed hitter. Who's got just a ton of power. Um, so I can, I can see where that came from. I was just trying to look up real quick. What well, Jordan Alvarez's DSL stats were in his pro debut. Um, oh, he got – I forgot. He got traded before he made his pro debut, so he didn't play a lot. But Jordan Alvarez only struck out seven times in 57, 57 plate appearances. So, yeah, for whatever that's worth. But, yeah, I, I get where they're coming from, but that's – we'll see. He's He's got a long way to go to get to where Jordan Alvarez is today. <laughs> Jim's done a great job of covering a bunch of Mariners with us so far. There's definitely still a couple other guys here that I think are worthy to talk about because I think the Mariners system here is pretty interesting, even with some of the blue chip guys graduating. We're on this trend here of international prospects. How good could Gabriel Gonzalez be? Yeah, he, like, I don't know why necessarily. He, I mean, I don't know. If, I mean, oh, I guess it's because he's just getting started, but like, yeah, you know, so we've been talking about these international guys, and I said like you don't really get a feel for what they are till they get to full season ball. So like Gabriel Gonzalez, really solid in the DSL in his pro debut, tore up the Arizona Complex League, and then he spent a month in Modesto last year. Um, and I guess he was what he was eighteen, you know, eighteen years old, single A, first time hit for a month, and he hit two eighty six. I mean, didn't hit for a ton of power, which is to be expected. Um, controlled the strike zone pretty well. Um, and, and so what I see in him is like, I, I like kind of like we're talking about Cole Young. Like, I think you, we've seen hitting ability there. It looks like it's real. There could be more power to come. Um, you know, maybe he winds up being a 270, 20 home run hitter. I mean, he's probably more of a left fielder than a right fielder, but, and he's not a center fielder, but you could see, like, I think he's going to hit. He looks like he's going to hit. Um, and, and that's the most important tool. You don't play in the big leagues if you don't hit. So, yeah, I, he, he's super interesting. Very encouraging what he did at the end of last season when he got to high, uh, single A at 18. And, and really curious to see what he does. Like, he'll obviously spend the entire year in full season ball. Now, he'll still only be 19 years old to see what he does with it. What about Prelander Baroa? He, I mean, he looks like now, from what we've seen from him in the spring and all the things we're hearing out of camp, he seems like a shoe-in for, for the Mariners' bullpen at some point this season. Yeah, you know, it's funny. So I do our um, our uh, Giants prospect list. It's funny. I, I like I, I was, Donovan Walton's kind of your classic gamer, high IQ guy, knew his dad, you know, he's a very good college coach. I like Donovan. I was really shocked the Giants traded Prolander Baroa for Donovan Walton. Um, I mean, the stuff's super nasty. I mean, it's mid-90s, up to 100, good run on the fastball. It's kind of a short slider, but it's got some power to it. He can throw a changeup a little bit. It's, just, it's a big-time arm. He's not He's not a, a tall guy. He's a former infielder when he signed. He's not thrown – a bunch of strikes, and that's the question. But, I mean, the guy just misses bats. Um, you know, I think he's one of these guys, you know, it's time before, I forget who, where you, or maybe we, were, maybe we weren't. But you start guys to get them innings. I think he's clearly a reliever with his size and his delivery. Um, if you put him bullpen, his stuff might tick up, and he might be sitting 96, 98. Um, I, I, with him, I think it's just going to come down to 
you know, is, is, is not a big guy, would not like the smoothest delivery, you know, does he stay healthy? And, you know, the, then the other question is, how many strikes does he throw? Like if you get him, if you got him to average control, maybe he has closer eighth inning stuff. If he, if he can't throw strikes or he doesn't improve in, in where he is now, then he's probably more that guy you bring in the sixth inning who throws real hard, but he's, he's interesting. And I, it was weird. Cause like, that was like almost like you're trading a like really high floor, low ceiling guy in Donnie Walton for a guy with a really high ceiling and a low floor in Prolander Baroa. But I, I was kind of surprised that the Giants made that trade. It's funny you say that, Jim. I know this quote didn't come from you, but it, there's some articles out there of scouts and some other people that when talking about that trade, Donovan Walton for Prelander Baroa, called it the worst trade of 2022. So it sounds wow. like you're not the only person that maybe scratched your head a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and I respect Donovan Walton. I just, like... Yeah, I just thought that was a high upside arm to give up for Donald Walton, who's got a limited big league ce- ceiling. Like, but you know, who knows? Maybe the, the Giants know something that I don't. Last question for me on the 2022 draft class: Any of those guys, the the, the other guys like Tyler Locklear or Mike? Uh, I mean, Michael Morales was 2021, but he he hasn't pitched a whole ton, so maybe him too. Walter Ford, Ashton Izzy. I mean. Out of those guys, is there anyone you're, you're kind of expecting to, to jump based off what you saw from him uh, from yeah. earlier on? Yeah, I mean, there's, a lot of those guys are, are, are super interesting, honestly. Like, you know, I was telling you guys, you know, Walter Ford was supposed to be in this year's draft and reclassified. And I think at times, because he was a year younger, he like, like he didn't have an unbelievable senior season. I think he... Um, like maybe suffered in comparison to guys who were a year older, um, you know, maybe a little bit more physically developed at times, but like, I, I like a lot of, I like, he's the guy who interests me the most of those guys you mentioned. Like he's up to 97. He's, he shows, you know, some pretty interesting feel for slider. He, you know, he's actually a pretty good two-way guy. He's athletic. He just needs to get more consistent. And I think now that he's not trying to prove himself for the draft after reclassifying, and you just focus on becoming the best pitcher that he can be, I think he could be really, really good. Um, and I think he's got good makeup. So I really like him. But they had a lot of, like I said, I think Locklear hits the ball as hard as almost any player in the entire draft. You know, Ashton Izzy, who they got in, in the fourth round, is super projectable pitcher. He's got a chance to have three solid pitches and maybe solid control. Um like so they have, they have a bunch of interesting guys I, I think to kind of keep an eye on. Can Walter Ford live up to the hype of the nickname he's given himself, which is the Vanilla Missile? He calls himself. Can he live I up to mean, that? Yeah, I I do like that, and I, I like I do like his confidence. And you know, I mean, the guy already hits ninety seven, so I think yeah, you know, it'd be one thing if he was throwing like eighty six, eighty seven. I don't think you can call yourself the Vanilla Missile, but if you're touching ninety seven and you should really be a high school senior this year. Um, yes, I, I will I will grant him uh, permission to call himself Vanilla Missile. I, I think he's got a chance to be really, really good. I think we've covered just about everybody we wanted to talk to talk about prospect-wise. And again, you've done a really great job of hitting all the details on so many of these guys. I guess if we had one last question for you, and I know the draft's a little bit further away, but to kind of wrap up the Mariners minor league talk here, when you look at their system, you detailed it. 
a lot of their best guys right now are really on, on the young side, Ford, Cole Young, Celestin, some others, and they had a bunch of guys graduate. So when targeting this draft class, do you get any sense that the Mariners might try to fill some of that gap with maybe some high-end college bats that'll be at the high-A, double-A level in the next year or two? Or do you think they're more just focused on going best players available? I think they'll – I mean, you look at what they did last year. I mean, the system was kind of similar shape, and they took Cole Young High School, Walter Ford High School. Um, you know, Locklear was a college guy. Um uh, you know, Izzy was a high school guy. I'm forgetting who their third round pick was. Um, you know, I think especially at the top that, you know, I guess they're picking roughly the same area, right? Are they picking 22 this year? I think. And then they get the Julio, the, the, it's cool. You get the Julio bonus pick and then the um, mm-hmm. competitive bounce picks. They pick 22, 29, 30. I, I think they're pretty much, their MO has been to take who they think the best guy is. Now that said, the good news is that I do think the depth of this draft is in college hitters first and foremost, and then it's probably college pitchers versus high school hitters. So it's possible they could take two or three college players with those picks um, just because that's how the draft rolls out, not that they were specific, yeah, came to speak specifically, specifically targeting him is what I'm trying to say. I was just trying to scroll through a list. Like right now, our top 30 players on our top 100 that we did in December, 20 of them are college guys. So, I mean, I would think the odds would be prop like they'll probably wind up with at least two college guys there anyway. Um, but it's just, it's hard to know. Like, I don't, I don't think they were necessarily looking to take a high school guy in the first round last year, but I think they looked at it and rightfully so that they really believed in Cole Young's bat and believe he'll play up the middle and they, they just couldn't pass on him, that he was the best player on their board. I think they'll do the same thing this year. I think they'll they'll line up their board um, and take the best guy available. Well, Jim, this has been awesome. I mean, TJ and I have certainly learned a ton here in the hour and 10 minutes that we've been sitting here talking about some of these Mariners prospects. Because, I mean, we follow the prospect world, and, and we love to follow a bunch of these guys. But there's not many people that can break this stuff down better than you can. So we really appreciate all the time to help us kind of give us some insight on what this farm could look like in 2023. Cause it sounds like it's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah. Like, like you guys said at the top, um, I think there's a lot of upward mobility with this farm system. Um, no, this was fun. I, I enjoyed it. Um, like I, I even feel bad now that I was, I was calling into question our, our Celestine comps and I realized I've done the same thing with Jason Dominguez. So I, I can't <laughs> throw stones in my glass house here, but no, you guys asked a bunch of good questions. There's a bunch of interesting guys. Um, and it's cool. I mean, they, they've got a lot of interesting young players in Seattle and, and more guys, uh, more guys on the way. Well, thanks so much, Jim. We really appreciate it. Oh yeah. No problem at all. Well, that was a great interview with Jim Callis here on our minor league episode. This isn't going to be the last time we talk about minor leaguers throughout the year. We're going to be doing minor league talk really throughout most of the season on most of our regular season episodes. We'll have a minor league segment in there too, so we'll try to keep you guys up to date as best as we can. We really appreciate all the time from Jim. Okay, TJ, let's get to our listener question here. It's kind of a fun one this week. A little bit random, but certainly one that we're all here for. And we get a question this week that says, can we get a rant about Jack Zarenzik, old Mariners GM, about Jack Z? Kind of out of the blue, but you know what? I'm going to guess we're not the only people who have a thing or two to say about him these days. 
So let's do it. I'll, I'll, you know what? I'll kick it to you first. Jack Zarenzik. See, I feel like giving this attention is is a, is really a waste of time since we're just so far past this. I mean, Jerry Depoto has now been the general manager since 2016, and we really haven't had to worry about Jack Z for a while. But if we're going to bring up Jack Z, I just want to bring up one of my favorite parts about Jack Zarenzik tenure as Mariners manager, where Jack Zarenzik, when he was being hired back in, what was it, 2009, 2008? Which year exactly was it? Believe it was 2009. Oh, nine. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. So when he was being hired, uh, Jack Sarenjic portrayed himself as a scouting stats hybrid because that's what he needed to do to get the job. But Jack never understood one iota about statistical analysis. To this day, he evaluates hitters by home runs, RBIs, and batting average, and pitchers by wins and ERA. Statistical analysis was foreign to him, but he knew he needed it to get into door into the door so in summary that came from the seattle times i think ryan divish might have written it but the article has been wiped from the website so um unknown regardless just my funniest bit ever that he just straight up lied in his interview to get the job got the job and then did absolutely nothing as mariners general manager oh sorry actually got on the cover of sports illustrated once don't forget that so just to quickly clarify, he was hired in October of 2008, so his first season was 2009. But you're saying, TJ, you're sitting here saying that when the Mariners were kind of in the trenches in 2015 and Jack Zarenzik went out and made the splash of the century for Mark Trumbo, you're telling me that wasn't an analytics move? We know what he was looking at, and it was not Mark Trumbo's defensive numbers in the outfield. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> uh i mean you're right that we're so far past this day and age like the mariners we're witnessing right now is totally a new era for the mariners which is awesome and this is honestly the reason i actually want to rant about this a little bit at this point is not even so much because of what happened in the past and i did used to rant about it a lot in the past in fact most of our friends from college who have no connection to the mariners have heard me just rant and rant about all the drafts that they had but the reason I kind of want to rant about it now is because there's still people out there that somehow complain about Jerry DePoto and the job he's done. It's kind of like, remember where you came from, the old saying, remember where you came from. You want to go back to that, where in 2011, they were all but set to take either Anthony Rendon or Francisco Lindor, but they decided to go take Danny Holson, or even back in the Bill Bavese days, the 05 draft, the 06 draft, the 09 draft. I mean... I don't want to go back to that. I really like having Jerry DePoto here, a guy who actually uses analytics, not Jack Z who pretends to. Hmm. That was good. That was up to par, dog. I'm going to give you a round of applause. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad, glad I'm you got glad that I off could... your chest. Well, it's always there. I can always get it off. Sometimes I just need to be triggered for it, like this question did for me, because I said, hey, rant about Jack Z. I'll give you my thoughts on Jack Z. You know, I'm really glad they made the playoffs so we don't have to really reminisce on all the swings and misses throughout the drought. I'm glad. I'm glad it's over. We don't have to worry about it. Yeah, I agree. But hey, we're in a new day and age now. And I'll say it again as we wrap this up. Appreciate Jerry DePoto. Because again, you want to remember Bavese. You want to remember Zarenzik. 
You want to look around the rest of baseball at some of the other GMs and presidents of baseball operations? You could have it a lot worse. Jerry DePoto is good at his job. I will stand on that hill forever. I miss Pat Gillick. Oh, well, I Pat Gillick is great. That's, I, I think mean, that's fair. I mean, Pat Gillick's like a legend, though. I mean, he he won two World Series with the Blue Jays. He helped the Mariners win 116 games. He won a World Series with the Phillies. I mean, yeah, like I can't say DePoto's there yet or if he'll ever get there, but I think he's doing a pretty good job. Mm, man, we could just reminisce forever. We could. Okay, TJ, let's close out this show with Speak Your Mind. Speak Your Mind, Spock. That would be unwise. What is necessary is never unwise. I am genuinely curious to hear what you're thinking about this week, so let's hear it. Uh, it has to do with the NCAA tournament, but it has nothing to do with the basketball on the court. I think the most overhyped story of the weekend is the fact that F. Fairleigh Dickinson University has a junior running their media relations department. And beside, uh, my first thought when seeing this, and I saw some other people who thought just like me on Twitter, which I'm thankful that they, they saw it this way, that I was kind of worried. I'm like, um, it made me raise an eyebrow. It's not the fact, oh, man. Super cool that this kid uh, whose name is Jordan Sarnoff is a junior at FDU and runs the basketball team's media relations, which is a full-time job, by the way. Uh, people make you know salaries running that full-time at every major university in America, yet some student at FDU is running it, and people are like, oh, that's such a cool, it's so cool. He's getting all this experience. Oh, that's awesome. And I, all I could think about is, man, I really hope he's getting a paycheck. Like that, that is a full-time job. I mean, you're not only coordinating interviews, you're doing stat packs, you're, you're making sure like organizing media, you're running social media, especially in the smaller schools, running social media, doing graphic design, like all of these things. But he was like, Oh, it's so cool. He wanted it. He, he always wanted to do it when he, when he got to FDU, he, he went there as like a, as a senior in high school and told the athletic department he wanted to work there. It's like, well, I sure hope that doesn't mean they're taking advantage of him and paying him like half salary while he's at school. He's like, well, you're a student, so we can give you a stipend, but you can do all the work you want. It's like, no, it's like, he should be making a full-time salary doing that job and being a student at the same time. And no, scholarship doesn't count. He's working a job. Pay him for his job. I believe he did say it was compensated. It didn't say how much. Uh, it just, it's just disappointing that I even have to like speculate this, knowing that you know universities and, and other places are cutting salaries all over the place and just sticking a student in there to, to fill it up would, would be really on brand, to be honest, if, if that was actually the case, which I really hope it's not. Oh, so you don't think he's getting a paycheck. I guess I assume that he was. Uh, I believe he is. I believe he said he is. Now, I hope he's making what a full-time adult would be making working the same job. Yeah, like me and you both know, like we've been in college recently, like we know some jobs that people get paid professionally that college kids have to do for free. I, me and you did the exact same job at ASU that I do that I've done here at Oregon State and I get paid here. I did not get paid a single cent at ASU. So, I'll leave it at that. It's true. I mean, the sports journalism world, the sports media world is tough. Mm -hmm. But like you said, for somebody who's working a full-time job and being a student, you would hope he's getting paid for it. So yeah, you can only mm -hmm. cross your fingers. Okay. I have two, I have two 
topics here for my speak your mind. My first one's quick. Watch the first episode of the new Ted Lasso season was great. I'm going to keep harping on you about this. I'm not going to let you go until, until you watch it. Cause I, like everybody else in the world watches it. I know you don't have Apple TV, but it might be worth the one month to subscribe and just binge it. It's not that long. I'll think about it. Okay. Number two, I know we usually get away from baseball on these topics. I'm bringing it up on this one because the discourse around the World Baseball Classic this week has been absolutely insufferable. Like, I'm sorry, Mets fans, that you lost Edwin Diaz for the year, but you're ready to speak out and try to cancel the whole damn tournament? Like, no. These guys chose to play. Edwin Diaz chose to play in the WBC. You know what? It was a freak injury. It could have happened in spring training too. And then what? You're going to cancel all of spring training? Nobody gets to ramp up? See how many guys love this sport? And not even, I shouldn't say this sport, love this tournament? It means something to them. Mike Trout never gets to play in games like this. They want to play. Like, stop trying to cancel fun baseball. But it would be peak America if that happened. Because there's one thing I'm convinced after watching this tournament is that most Americans hate fun. They really do. Yeah, like, like, look. As Mariners fans, Drew Smiley got hurt in 2017. I was really, really furious when it happened because Smiley came off a good year the year before. He was supposed to be a vital piece of that rotation. They didn't have him all year. He never threw an inning for the Mariners. Am I sitting here saying the WBC should have been canceled? No. If it were up to me, would I, I guess, would I prefer that pitchers specifically from my own team don't pitch? I guess. Yeah, and that's why you see a lot of starting pitchers not participate, how Castillo opted out. But for the position players especially, like, what's the big deal? For the relievers, what's the big deal? You're throwing an inning a game. How is that any different than spring training? Like, the World Baseball Classic is fun. It's really fun. So stop trying to cast it aside. It's only once every four years anyway. But, Lyle, it's, 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 not, it's not fun. Baseball's not fun, apparently. Yeah, when Trey Turner called that grand slammy hit the biggest hit of his life. It sounds like he was really having a miserable time. Like he was forced to be there. It's like, Oh, I can't wait for the regular season to start. I roll. Yeah. Oh, uh, I don't like, I've, I've had such a blast watching this tournament. So anyone who doesn't want to watch it, I mean, go watch paint dry. Like, I don't care. <laughs> See ya. The, the ratings, the ratings would, would say that people, around the world in the world baseball classic really enjoy watching it. What was it? 63 million people watch Japan, Korea, 63 million. I believe that would top every single baseball game that has ever been broadcast in the United States ever. So I, I really wouldn't say that uh, nobody cares and that it's meaningless because just because it's meaningless to the people who only see baseball as a, as a, to, to fulfill their own self-interests and monetary interests in the United States doesn't mean, you know, the other what, 300 million people in this country. So 7.7 billion people around the world don't care. So, sorry. It, yeah, it's been fun. It's growing the game. It's a worldwide event, which is awesome. Also, last thing, totally separate from people complaining about this stuff, this stuff. Were there really people that didn't know who Shohei Otani was before this WBC? Because he's gained like a million and a half Instagram followers. I'm just surprised that it took people this long. 
not that they didn't know who he was, but they, he got promoted into their feeds and it doesn't necessarily mean it's just in Japan and the United States. It could be elsewhere too. So, I mean, that's that's a good thing though, because if there's one thing major league baseball sucks at (laughs) is growing social media followings, like they should, it's what baseball is to be most frustrated at is how they are not the NBA when it comes to that. You go look at any random bench player in the NBA and they have, half a million followers on Instagram. But I don't know, go check Matt Festa's Instagram. How many followers does he have? Not half Probably a million. not many. Yeah, no way. <laughs> right. That's my point. Yeah. So in conclusion, WBC, good for the sport. Watch it or just don't say anything at all. That's what I have to say. Okay. That'll just about conclude this week's edition of the Marine Layer Podcast. You guys know by now, if you guys want to listen to the full podcast, you can do so on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon. Full video podcast is on YouTube, our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube Shorts. Go follow them all at Marine Layer Pod. Also, didn't say it during our listener question segment, but seriously, continue to send us listener questions. Send us whatever you, you want to send us. Make it fun, too. And if they are, we'll certainly answer them. For TJ Matthewson, this is Lyle Goldstein. As always, we thank you guys for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week.